always a pleasure to be back together, worshiping in, uh, in song and in word. And so it's great to be back together. Uh, and looking at this passage, the, the, first, the first thought that came to my mind was the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. And it's a phrase that you've probably heard repeatedly at some point throughout your life. Uh, it's not like this is a new thought or a, a, something that has come up recently. It actually goes, the phrase itself goes all the way back to the Greek storyteller uh, Aesop, you know, usually famous for Aesop's fables, um, where he actually used a, a phrase similar to that in the, uh, the Four Oxen and the Lion, because I know you're, you're huge fable readers, and so I, I know you're excited to go home and read that today. Uh, but he also referenced it in his story, The Bundle of Sticks. Uh, so it's a phrase that goes all the way back uh, to, to ancient Greece, but we even see it in the, the, the growth and development of our own country. Uh, founding father uh, John Dickinson used that, uh, or a similar line, and the Liberty Song, which he wrote in 1768, uh, where he wrote, Then join hand in hand, brave Americans all. By uniting we stand, by dividing we fall. So we see this phrase come back up as, as we're growing and developing, even as a, a nation. Uh, in, in 1792, I knew I was going to do that, 1972, K- Kentucky became a state far be- long before 1972. In 1792, Kentucky became a state as part of the Union, and six months later, it became their state motto, united we stand, divided we fall. In 1799, Patrick Henry's last public speech, he says this, let us trust God and our better judgment to set us right hereafter, united we stand, Divided we fall. Let us not split into factions which must destroy that union upon which our existence hangs. And I think one of the the most familiar references in the the life of our country was in 1858 where Abraham Lincoln actually used this in a campaign speech addressing the nation and the need for for a universal decision regarding slavery because at that point there were still uh, a lot of conflict over what were we going to do as a nation regarding slavery. And so he said, united we stand, divided we fall. Throughout history there has been this repeated call for unity because division brings calamity and chaos and destruction. If we cannot stand together as a people, then we will destroy one another. And it seems more and more that we are forgetting that lesson in our culture today, that as a nation, we are continually more and more divided as political stances or personal beliefs continue to wedge people further and further apart because we have forgotten the core principles that unite us as a nation. Even worse, as the church, capital C, we continue to fight and bicker amongst ourselves and drive the church apart. Protestant churches 
alone have around 9,000 denominations. In North America, there are at least 31 different Presbyterian denominations. Just Presbyterian. And that's just in North America, in that confines. And there's constant bickering and arguing over the proper mode of baptism. Or should you baptize infants? Or, or do you wait for someone to make a public declaration of faith? Uh, what are the ways that you observe the Lord's Supper? And uh, do you use grape juice? Can you only use wine? Are you allowed to dip the bread in the grape juice or the wine? Uh, what songs are you allowed to sing during worship? Uh, who you can or cannot ordain. You find all of these arguments continually driving people and churches farther and farther apart. And as the church, the world sees us being known more for the things that we are fighting about than the things that we are fighting for. We're known more for our arguing and bickering and division than we are being united. And then we read this passage in Ephesians 4, and we see that the early church was no different from us. That there was bickering and division. And that is why Paul is writing and urging the church toward unity. Because he's saying that every believer should pursue a mature faith. Not mature in the sense of... uh, what movies you are and are not allowed to see that you're a good Christian because you don't go see rated R movies. I actually haven't heard that argument in a long time, but I know people that have said that. Are the kind of music that you do or do not allow your family to listen to. I'm not talking about superficial judgments of maturity like that. I'm not talking about maturity, and this is a representation of, of who I am, but if, whenever you, if you giggle when someone says that it's their duty to say something, if you giggle at that, I'm not talking about that kind of level of maturity because I have the, the attention span and humor level of a middle school boy. But Paul is talking about a Christian maturity that is displayed by unity. And that a Christian pursues maturity by pursuing unity. And we see this in this passage in Ephesians 4, in verses 1 through 6, that by pursuing unity with church family. Pursuing unity with church family. In verses 7 through 14, by pursuing unity with church leaders. And finally, in verses 15 and 16, by pursuing unity with the church head, being Christ. Before we go any further and start unpacking the Scriptures, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time as we we set aside time from our own personal lives to come together and worship together as we sit before Your throne as we bring the, our, our emotional baggage and we, br- we bring our, our fears and our hopes and our dreams and our struggles and we lay all these things at Your throne and we ask that You would be here with us in this time. 
that we would not be distracted by the outside things in our lives and in our hearts, but God, that we would focus our hearts and our minds and our attention on you and what you have to communicate to us. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would be so very present in our very hearts, that your word cuts to the core of who we are, that you would speak through a broken man like myself to make your name great. And I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Now Paul opens this passage with a gentle reminder. He's saying that he is urging the church to walk in a certain manner. And and he's urging them to to pursue unity within their uh, immediate church family. And this urging... Uh, it's, it's not like a, a, a begging. It's this reminder, almost like a, a parent. If you, if you have small children or if your children are older now, if you remember when they were little, before you take them into somewhere, it's that gentle reminder where you get down on your knees and you're eye to eye and you're like, all right, no freaking out, no running, no screaming, no hitting, no grabbing. Just, we're just try not to destroy anything while we're here. It's that kind of reminder. Or for those of you, the, the teenagers in here, that whenever you go somewhere in public with your parents, that reminder, mom, dad, do not embarrass me. I know people here. Please do not embarrass me. It's that kind of a reminder that you're saying, please remember what I am about to tell you. And Paul urges the church. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, I'm, I want you to remember the way that you live your very life is to represent this calling that you have been giving, that you have been given. That the, way, the very way you conduct yourself, the way that you treat other people, the way that you talk, the way that you live and conduct business is meant to represent this calling that the Lord has put upon you. And how? He goes on to describe that in verses 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's not addressing non-believers. He's not expecting someone outside of the church to adhere to Christian standards. He's he's speaking specifically to believers and says you should treat, especially each other, but you should treat people with humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain unity in the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but those are not descriptions that I would use to characterize most churches that you see that pop up in the news or or things like that. A lot of times whenever you hear stories of local churches, we're more often known for arguing, for picketing, for boycotting. And there are times to do certain things like that. But more often than not, the church is known for standing against something instead of expressing humility and gentleness. 
How often are these words used to describe the church capital C? Or even the other believers in your very life? If you were to take a poll of the people that are directly around you every day, would they use any of these descriptors to define the way that you carry yourself? Paul says this is the way that you are called to carry out your life that it reflects the calling that God has called you to. And he points out what it is that unites the believers to this. Starting in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, that you are called into one body, the church, capital C, that you were not called into Two, River, Two Rivers Presbyterian Church. You were not called into a church in South Carolina. You were not called into the American church. You were called into the church, capital C, the body of Christ. You are part of the church universal. The one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who applies the work of Christ, what He has accomplished and gained in victory, the Spirit, the one Spirit, applies that to you. The one hope that belongs to your call this hope that is faith in Christ, the hope that there is more than just the destruction of this fallen world, but the hope for redemption now and forevermore. That there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism found in Christ alone. And the one God and Father over all. And that's completely contrary to the prevailing thought of our world today. Do what is right for you. As long as it doesn't mess with anybody else, if it's, if it's good enough for you, then that's what you should do. If you believe that it is right, go ahead. You'll see coexist stickers everywhere where each letter has the, the different symbol from different faiths and religions. Which, interestingly enough, all of those religions are claiming to be the only path. And sometimes even recommend violence toward one another. But no matter how hard you try, you cannot embrace pure diversity and expect it to lead to unity. Embracing differences in and of themselves does not naturally bring people together. It just doesn't work. And Paul is saying here that unity itself is found in Christ alone. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
that all of the other faith standards, all of the other religions, all of the other philosophies are all focused on ways that you can improve yourself and try to make yourself good enough to obtain perfection or heaven or nirvana or or, uh, whatever. And Jesus alone says, no, no, no. Truth and life is found only in Me. And no one gets to God the Father except through Me. This is not do what is right for you. This is not all roads lead to one God. This is one body, one hope, one Lord. And that is a very offensive statement to make in our culture, not just today, but throughout history. The statement that Christ alone saves people, that there is no other God outside of our God is a very controversial statement. But our unity is found in that one God that says, I am the only way. Come to Me. But because of the things that we see in verses 4-6, through because of the one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God over all, because of those things, that is why you are called to conduct yourselves with humility and gentleness. That is why you are called to patience, to bear with one another in love to have compassion for one another because of this one God who has called you to Himself. And just take a moment and and reflect, does that describe the way that you treat others? Not just the people that are nice to you already, because it's, it's easy to already extend graciousness to the people that you already like or the people that have done something for you. But how do you treat the other people in your life that are on the fringes? Does this describe the way that you talk to people? Even people that you might not know that come into the church, are you you showing affection and patience with them? Do these descriptions describe the way that you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul shifts and starts talking about what what God has provided for the church. And he's urging now the, the church to pursue unity with church leadership. Starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. And he's taking this line uh, almost directly from Psalm 68. And I know it's not a psalm that we often rejoice in in the church, but it's actually a, a psalm of a victorious Lord who's returning from battle. That this is a a song that 
that believers would sing rejoicing in a mighty and victorious God over all. And in Psalm 68, starting in verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up, God is our salvation. That doesn't sound like a kind of psalm that we would typically sing on a Sunday morning, but that is a song rejoicing in this covenant God who's uh, coming victoriously from battle and He's bearing gifts uh, at, that are uh, the spoils of war. That a king, when he, when he would overthrow his enemies, that they would take the treasures of the vanquished enemies and bring them back to his nation and say, these are the gifts that I'm giving to you. And so Paul is using this descriptive psalm to describe the gifts that God is giving to his people. And he describes the ascension in verses 9 and 10 by saying, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That Christ, God in the flesh, descended from his heavenly throne to dwell among creation here on the earth. That he conquered sin and death. And in his resurrection, that he is victorious. And as he ascends back, into his, back to his heavenly throne, that he gives the spoils of war to his people. That he gives these gifts to his people. And what are the gifts that he gives? Because we're often confused by the term gift. We, we want a gift to be a thing. We want gifts to make our lives more comfortable or more enjoyable, more shiny and sparkly. We want the new toys. But the gifts that God gives to His people are different. The gifts that He gives are listed in verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are the gifts that God gives to His people. Not stuff, not material wealth, not comfort and ease, but He gives them leaders. Continuing in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. These gifts that God gives to His people, these leaders, these, uh, the apostles, the, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, these are the gifts that God gives to, to equip the church for ministry, to build the church up toward maturity. 
These are the gifts that He gives His people for their growth, for their good, for their their spiritual well-being and provision so that they are not tossed about. And the uncomfortable aspect is there are some that abuse that position. There are some that have abused their power. And they've taken that position and used it for their own wealth. But that does not disqualify the gifts that God has given His people. Just because there are those that would ruin the gifts that God gives, He still gives good gifts. These roles, these shepherds, these teachers, these are the gifts that God gives to you, the church. And have you ever thought of your church leaders as gifts? That the elders that God has ordained to to lead the church, that they're there to help shepherd the church. They're They're there to defend against false teaching and to instruct the church for their spiritual growth. The deacons that are ordained over the church are there to help nurture and care for the church, to provide and to come alongside. That these roles, these authorities, these shepherds are gifts from God Himself for your good. That the pastor is not just a a, a, a set-apart person, but that he is also a fellow elder joining side by side with the, the elders over the church to lead the flock, to provide for them, to help them grow, to equip and to build up. That is their role to care for you, to watch over you, to protect you from the the, the attacks of the the enemy, and to equip and build you up for kingdom work, for God's glory, for His name. And do you listen to these leaders that God has put over you? When's the last time that you as a, a, a congregation have prayed for the leaders over you? Not because they're any more special than you are, but to, to pray for their protection as they are leading God's people. Do you pursue unity with your church leaders? Because it's easy to play the offense card and say, well, I don't like the way that person talked to me that one time. Or, you know, the the way that that guy taught the Sunday school class was just boring, so I'm just going to go to another church that I feel fits my needs more. Or, uh, we often view church as wanting to fit our needs and our desires and our comforts instead of viewing that these leaders in the church as there to help shepherd us closer to Christ. To help us grow in spiritual maturity. God has given these men as leaders for your growth, for your spiritual health, for your spiritual nourishment. And these are gifts for you. Are you pursuing unity with them?
And once again, Paul shifts his focus. And this time he's shifting his focus off of these men, mankind, and shifting his focus toward God himself. And urges unity by uh, pursuit or urges maturity by pursuing unity with the church head himself being Christ. In verses 15 and 16, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. His language now has shifted from you to we. He's no longer saying, I am urging you towards these things, but he's saying that we are to grow up in every way, into Him. He's including Himself with them with this reminder that we are all in this together. There is no person on earth who has attained holiness on their own. There is no person on earth who can say, you know what, I've done it. I've reached earthly perfection. This is as good as I am going to get. He says all of us need to continue to grow into the head which is Christ. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Regardless of who you were, what your background is or was, regardless of your skin color, regardless of where you were born, regardless of what level, upper, middle, lower class, regardless of who you were, all people are baptized into one body, the body of Christ. That regardless of if you are an elder or a deacon or just a member of the congregation, regardless of if you can teach a Sunday school class or if you work in the nursery, regardless of who you are or what position you have, you are part of one body with many different parts. It's not just the teachers or the worship team. But there are many different parts. And just as each part of the body functions in a different manner, so it is with the body of Christ. There are some of you here that are more than able and willing to open your homes to receive people in and extend Christian hospitality and to share love through your very home. There are some of you here that have a joy of taking Christ with you into the workplace and the very way that you conduct your business is glorifying Christ. That no matter where you go, work, school, 
soccer, baseball, when you go shopping, when you're buying your groceries. There are some of you here that are so gracious in your love for others that you cannot help but pour the Gospel out of you when you're interacting with those around you. There are those in the body that are the hands and the feet carrying the Gospel out. There are some of you here in the body that are more like the muscles that enable the hands and the feet to move. That you are the ones that help equip and encourage. There are some of you in here that are like the skin of the body that protect just as every body has many different parts working together for a common goal. You are part of the body of Christ for the goal of His glory and His kingdom all under the head of Christ. And this is part of the gift of God to you. That in spite of who you were, in spite of your being an outsider, that at one time that you were considered an enemy of God, that Christ died for you, that He took your sin with Him on the cross, that He gave you His righteousness, and that in His resurrection, He restores your very soul and gives you redemption. That Christ is the love that holds the body together. And as the head, He leads the body. As your head directs your body where to go, Christ is the head over the body of the church, leading the church so that when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so I have to ask, are you pursuing unity with Christ Himself? With the the very love that is holding the body of the church together, are you pursuing unity with the head of the church? The one that loves the outsiders and the rejects and brings them in, doesn't just call them family, but says, you are part of my body now. Because you can't do the first two if you're not doing this one. You cannot love your church family if you do not love Christ. You cannot love and pursue unity with your church leaders if you are not pursuing unity with Christ. Because at some point, all of us in here are fallen, broken, sinful people. And at some point, someone's going to make you upset. Someone's going to offend you and step on your toes. Someone's not going to return that call. Someone's going to skip your invitation. And it's easy to play the offense card and say, that person has hurt me, I'm cutting them off. I'm leaving that church, I'm going to go find something that more fits what I want. Treating church more like a shopping mall than the body of Christ. But if you are pursuing unity with the very head of the church himself, with Christ, then you recognize that these offenses 
are merely superficial because we are all united in one. We are all part of one body, one church, under one Lord. Unity doesn't come from trying harder, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Unity doesn't come from fighting over who's right in an argument. Unity comes from submission to Christ alone. And the reminder that as Christ has loved me, I am going to love others. And so I ask, will you pursue a mature Christian faith? Will you pursue unity with your church family with the reminder that all of us in here have been called to one hope? Will you pursue unity with your church leaders? These gifts that God has given for your growth and your development and your well-being. But most importantly, will you pursue unity with the head of the church himself, Christ Jesus, whose love has brought you from an outsider into his body? Will you pursue these things? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love for us, that you took us who were once outsiders, that we were on the fringe, we were the rejects. That God, you brought us in. You made us part of your family. You made us part of your body through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we confess that far too often we try to pursue unity and strength on our own terms and our own means. And God, we confess our stubbornness and our rebellion. We confess our brokenness. God, help us in our weakness. Be with us now. Fill us with your Spirit to bring, to build us in unity, not just as a church locally, but as part of your church. Help us as we pursue unity with one another. Help us as we strive for unity with these gifts and leaders that you have given to us for our growth. But most importantly, give us the strength. Be our strength as we pursue unity with Christ himself. And we thank you for all of these things in his victorious name. Amen.